This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Until I started preparing for this conversation, I had never heard of Justin St. Germain, who, despite attending some of the worst schools in the country, has emerged as a highly acclaimed new author with his memoir, Son of a Gun, about the life and death of his mother. My mother was uh, a girl from North Philly who left at 17 to join the army, got married, had my brother, got out of the army, moved back to Philly, had me, got divorced, got back into the army, went to airborne school, started jumping out of planes, learned Arabic, got out of the army, moved to Arizona, and uh, was also married five times. And then eventually, when I was 20, was killed by her fifth husband in a remote patch of land in the middle of absolutely nowhere outside of Tombstone, Arizona. Until I started preparing for this conversation, I had never heard of LaShonda Catrice Barnett, an African-American historian whose first novel, Jam on the Vine, was inspired by the true story of the first African-American woman to own and operate an American newspaper. As Miles Davis said, it takes a long time in jazz to learn to sound like yourself. And I feel that that applies beautifully to writing, too. And until I started preparing for this conversation, I had never heard of Belinda McKeon, whose path to writing began as a child in the Irish Midlands. I grew up on a farm, so there were a lot of chores. And I think that writing became an escape, in a way, from hard work. I think I could get away with it as well, because it looked like I was doing my homework. You know, it looked like I was studying. And I still pull this trick all the time in in different ways in my life. All of you readers and writers and teachers and students and fellow parents who are driven by your curiosity, welcome to the Wavemaker Conversations Emerging Authors episode, recorded live at this summer's Nantucket Book Festival. I did this event last year, and it's, it's a little uh, intimidating, but at the same time a huge opportunity because three incredibly distinctive voices from totally different worlds. And so, you know, what questions am I gonna ask? And, and it's the fact that we have LaShonda here. She's gonna start by explaining why there cannot be a script or set questions for a great conversation because LaShonda immersed herself in the world of jazz for a while and I just found out did her a thesis. Her dissertation. Dis, sorry, her dissertation on a couple of my favorite jazz artists. So just to introduce yourself a little bit, and before you created this person, this African-American journalist who is featured in in your new novel, just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you've come from. Good morning. I am so delighted, firstly, to be on the island of Nantucket for the first time. It is absolutely stunning here. Oh, I just, I feel so lucky. I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but I'm a Midwesterner by roots. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And I come to creative writing a very interesting way, I think, although I'm very scholastic. I have a PhD in American Studies from the College of William and Mary. I've never taken a creative writing course. I've known that I am a writer since I was eight years old, but I always wanted to keep it very, very fresh. And I wanted to keep it uncontaminated by someone else's ideas about narrative and what should go into a story and what should be left out. So it's one of, it's 
writing is so dear to me that I've been very, very specific about who I read, who I teach as a professor, and whose writing advice I take personally. I'm adding to my passion for writing, my passion for jazz, because uh, for any of you who've read the novel or who plan to read the novel, music plays a very, very significant role in my writing process. I've been asked this spring while being on tour for the novel, who are some of my favorite writers? And every time I say Lucinda Williams or Joni Mitchell or Nina Simone or Abby Lincoln, you know, interviewers look at me askance. But that's because I believe that singer-songwriters in particular have their, their finger on the pulse of emotive power. And I don't know how many of you out there have ever had the experience of opening a book, going on this journey for three or four hundred pages, closing the book, and realizing that you haven't had one major feeling about the book one way or the other. Unfortunately, I've had that experience a lot. And when I embarked on my creative writing career, I decided that that would never be my fault, that my readers, no matter what their opinion of my work was going to be, it wouldn't be that I left them with no feelings. And so I do look to poets, and I do look to musicians especially, because musicians do, in three minutes, through a song lyric or through music, what some writers can't do over the hall of a novel. And to inspire myself with that emotive power, I look to music. And I look to jazz especially for its improvisatory nature. In my debut novel, Jam on the Vine, that I'll be discussing with you today, I actually conceived members of the novel as jazz players. And so when writing their dialogue, when writing about their lives, I envisioned that they would be contributing to a jazz jam session the way distinct instruments would. So you'd have 36 bars from a trumpet or 36 bars from a clarinet or 36 bars from an alto sax. And if you're really a learned musician, if your ear is trained, there's no way you would ever confuse a trumpet with a clarinet. And so I wanted to, to lend my characters distinct voices in that way. So uh, I take music with me to the keyboard and American history. I'm a voracious historian. Thank you. And, and by the way, what instrument would you consider yourself to be? An oboe. Oh. My 16-year-old daughter plays the oboe, and, and I can tell you, it is hard to get a great sound out of that oboe. Um, and, and, but she does it. She do, I mean, she does it. So, and as Miles Davis said, it takes a, one of my favorite Davis quotes, it takes a long time in jazz to learn to sound like yourself. And I feel that that applies beautifully to writing too. There are many writers, you, can, you know who they've read in their first or second novels because they're emulating them in a way, which is a form of flattery, but as wonderful as Edith Wharton is, we don't need two Edith Whartons. We need Edith Wharton and LaShonda. So, so Belinda McKeon, am I pronouncing your last name right? Yeah, it'll Belinda do. McKeon, <laughs> who, who is now, so now we have two New Yorkers, and of course all great New Yorkers are usually transplanted from somewhere else, and you're transplanted from Ireland. Tell mm -hmm. us about, first of all, I mean, do you have an instrument in mind for who you are? Yeah. Well, I played piano from the age of eight until about 20, and I played piano the same way that I write, which is to worry about it, worry about not doing it, 
more than I seem to actually get down to it, and then to get down and you know, binge on the keyboard. So, yeah, I think I'm a, a messy piano player as a writer, yeah. <laughs> well, and so, and so tell me about, about your upbringing and how you, came, how you emerged and came from... I almost feel like people from Ireland have an unfair advantage in writing. But, 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 but tell me, tell me how you came from where you were well, I, I grew up on a farm in County Longford, which is in the Irish Midlands. It's very small, rural um, county. Um, not much of a literary heritage, although some. Uh, Mariah Edgeworth uh, spent her entire life in Longford. So I started writing at the age of eight as well. So it's, it's really interesting to me that Lashonda and I have the same beginning age. And for me, it was a, it was a thing of my own. Um, that's how, you know, I think you, can, you tend to sort of create a narrative of your own writing self once you start thinking about this thing which was utterly unthinking or uncontrived, you know, especially as, as a child when you start writing, you don't do so, I think, with an, with an aim in mind, really. You do it because it's something that you absolutely need to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I, I guess I had discovered books, you know, in a big way at school. And I just have a very strong memory of, of going down to my bedroom in the evenings. I, I grew up on a farm, so there were a lot of chores and I was the eldest of four. My, my little brother wasn't yet old enough to, to do all the farm work, so I was, you know, that was my job, um, or to help out, I should say. And I think that writing became an escape, in a way, from, you know, from, work, from hard work. Um, I, I, and I think I could get away with it as well, because it looked like I was doing my homework, you know? It looked like I was studying, and I still pull this trick all the time in, in different ways in my life, you know? Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I think it was a learned um, strategy, and so it became something thrilling and private. And in fact, in a way, once it became, once I had very encouraging teachers, and my parents were very encouraging of my writing from that age. But I still, I still kind of would love to tap back into the energy of those couple of months when it was just mine, before I showed it to anybody, before my teacher started saying, "This is really good. You should do this. You should do that. You know, you should enter this co contest for kids." That kind of thing. Anyway, from that point on, it was the most important thing to me. It has never not been my primary need in life and my primary identity in a really just unthinking, instinctual way. Um, but I have worked at various writing-related jobs and will continue to do so, not just because I need to make a living, but because I need to balance the intensity and, and actually, without sounding very poor mouth about it, the loneliness of writing with and the solitude, which, which can flip over very easily into loneliness, especially on a long project. Um, I need to balance that with the, the sociability and, and talking. To, I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. I teach undergrads at Rutgers University where they're all taking creative writing. They're not taking, it's not a graduate program, so they, they haven't decided to commit themselves in that way to, to, to writing in that academic sense or that, um, that structured sense. But they're, they're, they're seeing what it's like to be in a classroom of writers and, and to, to show their writing to people for the first time. And I went to university at 17. I went to Trinity College Dublin and I studied English and philosophy. And those were just marvelous years of my life, those four years, moving to a different city, moving to a city, moving to a new place, having to find my own way, but also discovering reading and discovering the ways to think about reading and writing that were utterly new to me, that just hadn't been a possibility before because of the way the Irish high school uh, s um, system is structured. It's very much kind of focused on 
learning things by heart and regurgitating them on exam papers. There wasn't much room for independent thinking. So at, at university, that all changed, and it was just wonderful. And my second novel, Tender, is written out of that time. It's partly autobiographical. It's, more about, it's much more about a very intense uh, friendship which flips over into a codependent, messed-up relationship than it is about the... the the enormity of, you know, that, that sense of, of things opening up at university. But it is partly autobiographical in that my protagonist is a young woman from the county that I come from. She goes to university, she wants to be a poet, um, and uh, she's sort of discovering things about herself and about the world. Um, and then she meets with a young man who opens her world up further, but actually because of the time and place and because of the sociocultural um, context, uh, it sh it all, things are shutting down as well. Um, I don't know whether this is the right time to talk about the, the subject of the novel or um, uh, maybe later. Yeah, I would say let, I want to hold your thought there. I, I do want to ask you just quickly, as as, sure. as a parent, and you know, we're, uh, we parents are consumed with our kids' education, and sure. and this this period in high school you described, you know, just the regurgitation, you know, and the lack of openness. Did that in some way, though, benefit you in any way or just make you hungrier for the experience you got in college? Or was it just, now I just wish my high school experience I really had been don't think it did. And I don't mean, you know, I don't like being negative, but I don't, I don't think that it, it been, I think it really held me back and that it took me a good year or so to really loosen up once I got to college and to sort of, op you know, to university and to open my eyes and think, oh, wait, I don't have, I'm not, I shouldn't actually do it that way. That's not what, that's not what thinking is. Um, sure. So... It, you know, I think it's very similar here, but I, I do see my, my undergrads come in with a different range of reading, and you know, they, they are they're widely read in a different way. But I think the racing towards the exam hall or towards the final grade, it is it's incredibly limiting. You know. So so we have one writer who started at the age of eight, another writer who started at the age of eight, and Justin, how old were you when you started writing? I can't really remember. I think it's still sort of, I don't really know the answer to when I really started to become a writer. It still sort of bewilders me to think of myself as one sometimes, uh, especially when I'm at a writer's festival and identifying as a writer. I, I don't know, um, I went to, I grew up in rural Arizona in Tombstone, home of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, and so on one hand, I grew up really steeped in, in narrative and these, you know, these Western myths. On the other hand, I went to some of the worst public schools in the country, and um, the idea of being a writer was not really a possibility. I remember my career day, uh, my senior year of high school, there was a plumber, uh, and there were people from every branch of the service, and there was a community college recruiter. And so um, it wasn't exactly like being a writer was you know, on, my, on my mind then, but then I think in, in a way that a lot of people maybe wind up doing. I, I went to University of Arizona, and then I took a creative writing class, uh, a fiction class, and then sort of went from there. That was, that was the beginning of my real interest. And I was also, in, I mean, I was a journalist. I feel like I've defected to, my book's a memoir, so now I'm sort of a nonfiction writer. <laughs> but uh, I sort of defected from journalism and from fiction in that order. Uh, I thought I was gonna be a journalist at first. I, I worked, uh, I majored in, minored in journalism, and I was, uh, I worked at my college newspaper, and then I got a math, an MFA in fiction writing, and then came sort of late to nonfiction, especially. I guess I was 28 or 29. But 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 the roots of your writing—it struck me because first of all, early in your book, and again, the the book the, the premise of the book is it's a horrible story. It's the murder of your mother, 
and somehow you emerged from it. Not only that, but you describe your own upbringing as being one in a community of uh, essentially white trash is the term you used. So here's a guy from, you know, I mean, and nobody uses that term. You know, there's, there's one comedian who's, who, uh, what's it, who, the redneck. Uh, you know you're a redneck if? Jeff Foxworthy. Jeff Foxworthy. That's as close as I've ever heard in public to people talking about themselves as white trash. And, and yet what really struck me was you talk about when your mother was murdered, you started making entries in a journal that you had already been writing. And this was at the age of what, 19? Yeah, I, was, uh, I just turned 20. So 19, so you were already writing, at least we, we've got that, at 19, not for credit, just for yourself, right? What, what, what kinds of things were you entering there? Did you consider yourself in some way a writer at that point? Or why were you keeping a journal? I don't think of it, I didn't think of it as a public act at the time. I mean, I think it was a processing mechanism, essentially. And uh, I had this inclination to document things in writing. But I think I, I was still making a distinction that it was very much a private act, that it was not. And, and I still make that distinction. That's one of the things I teach uh, nonfiction writing. And one of the important distinctions I try to make with students is the writing that's for therapeutic purposes or for yourself and the writing that's for a reader, that's for an audience. And so it wasn't until I, I was keeping pretty extensive journals, which wound up being very valuable when it was time to reconstruct the story for the purpose of writing the book. But it took about eight years in between writing it for my own private sort of reading and writing it for an audience. So, so again, I'm sorry to bring it back to the parenting thing because I have three kids in this developmental age and they're from you know, middle elementary school to through high school. And you know, we parent, how many parents in the audience? Wow, okay. Well, so you know, we often think, you know, what can we do to instill this kind of appetite for reading and writing. And so far, I have, from the three of you, I haven't heard the word parents once. <laughs> so tell me, I mean, did, did this all come from within you? Because if it did, I'm gonna take a break. <laughs> Their answers in a moment on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Back to our emerging authors in a moment, First, our guest LaShonda Catrice Barnett gives us a sneak peek at the novel she is working on right now. I wrote a trilogy of plays called The Appropriate Ones, and one called Menemsha, which is a little place on Martha's Vineyard, sorry. Um, one, <laughs> one called Menemsha will be staged at an off-Broadway theater in Manhattan called Stage Left, and all three of the plays are about an interracial family in America. All three of the plays deal with race, because it is the wound that will not heal in America until we rip off the Band-Aid and let it breathe, talk about it. Um, it is a play about uh, an interracial lesbian couple who live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and they raised a black son who is now a college graduate, a man of the world, and is experiencing what it's like to be a black man. And in, in his experiences, he sort of turns against his white mother, which is deeply, deeply painful for the character of June. And uh, so the play Menemsha unfolds when the family is vacationing on the vineyard and the white mother and the black son um, go toe to toe. And it's, it's very dramatic and very painful. And the other thing that I'm working on is my Gilded Age novel called God's Follies. And it's also inspired by real women, women's history. Uh, there was a famous 
jewel thief in Manhattan, a Jewish jewel thief by the name of Frederica Mandelbaum. She was known as Queen of the Fences because she could get in any apartment in Manhattan and so could her thieves. And uh, at the same time that she lived, and she lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there was a black woman in Harlem named Queenie. So there was Queenie of the Fences and there was Queenie who was the first black person to set up a numbers bank. And in my novel, I have, I have these two women meet and they are vying for Manhattan's underworld. And, and but they eventually work together and they pull off the heist of the century. That's the new book. Uh, 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 another wonderful case of Jewish-African-American cooperation. <laughs> With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a politician. I believe in the people and their cars and progressive and the fact that you, yes, you can plug in Snapshot to save even more money for being a good driver. I also believe in Sasquatch, but more as a joke, but also kind of seriously. Safe drivers save with Snapshot from Progressive. I approve of this message, and Sasquatch, if you are real, you can totally be my running mate. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company. Snapshot not available in all states. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Back now to my conversation with three highly acclaimed and fascinating emerging authors, Justin St. Germain, author of Son of a Gun, which is a memoir of his mother and her murder at the hands of her fifth husband. Belinda McKeon, author of the novel Solace and Tender. By the way, despite the heavy sexual content, the nuns from her school showed up to her book event in Ireland this summer. And LaShonda Catrice Barnett, author of the novel Jam on the Vine. Why don't we start with you? I want to point out that I've done a couple of interview books with uh, black and Brazilian women musicians, over 100 women musicians. 90% of them received their calling to music before the age of 10. 90%, 90 out of 100 women. And the more I did research on creative process, it seems that this is a major trend, at least in an American culture, that that, that that initial spark to do something creative happens before we learn to place restrictions and inhibitions on ourselves. So I will say to all the the wonderful parents whose hands I saw raising. If you have a child who is expressing some interest in creativity, uh, even if you don't think it's going to pay, I mean, that's not the point. The point is nurturing passion, and the point is nurturing um, what I like to call discipleship, because that's what it means to practice the arts, to be disciplined like a disciple. That said, my mother, if she had said to me, please write, I would have run from writing, and I would have become a soccer star. 
because I think that's really a part of the dance that children do with their parents sometimes. My family left me alone, and I cannot emphasize how important that was. Um, like Belinda said, I think because I owned it, because it was mine, there was nobody else in the house who claimed to be a writer, that made it all the more attractive to me. My parents did, however, have a literary culture built into our livelihood, and that was very important. My father went to the library every Thursday. I saw him reading, I saw my mother reading, and so I knew that there was a reverence for literacy in the home, but that's all that I really saw, and I started to win lots of creative writing contests from the age of eight on up through school, and they put my little certificates in frames and hang them on the wall, and so I knew that they were proud, but they never told me not to write or to write, and that made all the difference because I could really own it. Are your parents alive, by the yes. way? Yes. So they're seeing your success yes. now. You know what your father said after your first book? Thank God I don't have to go to the library anymore and set this example. <laughs> so, 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 you know, you know what? Actually, let me let me do this for the three of you now. Let's go in this order. Introduce the one character, the one not character, the one person who you've, in your cases, you've created and and you focused on, you reported on, who you'd like us to meet. I'd love to introduce you to Ivo Williams, who is the heroine of my novel, Jam on the Vine. We meet her when she is nine years old, and by the novel's close, she's 38 years old. Uh, she's scrappy, she's book-loving, she's tenacious. She grows up in the Jim Crow South and eventually becomes a journalist in the Jim Crow Midwest in Kansas City, Missouri, not too far from Ferguson. And um, she's loosely based on two very important African-American women in history who very few people know about. The first woman is Ida B. Wells Barnett. She was a very famous anti-lynching crusader. She was also was a journalist for the Memphis Free Speech. And she traveled all over the country. I'll come back to this a little later. It's important that I mention her now. She traveled all over the country doing what we now call investigative journalism. It was born with Ida B. Wells in the 1880s. And she was conducting uh, interviews with people trying to get to the root of lynching, why there were so many black men, women and children, but mainly black men, who were losing their lives uh, to lynching. And she did this for many years. It culminated in a very important book called The Red Record, which was written in 1892. And then she wrote another book called Southern Horrors. And these books are the first really important works on investigative journalism and on lynching. And the second woman that lived in real time was Carlotta Bass, and she was the first African-American woman journalist to own and operate her own newspaper, which was the California Eagle. She started it in 1912, and she served as its editor-in-chief until 1951. When she retired, she ran for vice president of the United States, and no one knows her name. She was the first black woman to run for vice president, Carlotta Bass. And so I took these two historical figures who actually lived, and they really served as my launch pad into Ivo's world. Um, so I'd like to introduce you to Catherine Riley, who's the protagonist of my second novel, Tender. And Catherine also becomes a journalist, and um, if, she was a real person. Um, three weeks ago, she would have been one of the 40,000 Irish emigrants who flew back to Ireland to vote in the equal marriage referendum. 
um, she would have she would flown home from London in her case, where at the end of the novel she works as and this is not a spoiler she works as a an art journalist, a journalist who writes about art for the visual arts magazine Freeze. Um, Tender is the story of her, her young adulthood, of, well, whatever you call that period of life when you're 19 or 20. I never really know, because you are an adult, but you're not. Um, at least in Ireland, I guess that age 21 is a, it means a different thing in, in different countries, but she's still at that stage of her life. And when she's 19, Catherine, who's come from a farming background to Dublin to study literature, meets with James, who's also from a rural background, but is, is, a, is a different he's in a different place in his life, he's an aspiring photographer, he uh, doesn't go to college, he pursues his own path, and meeting with him changes Catherine's life. Um, James is gay, uh, it's Ireland in the 90s, it's only five years after homosexuality has been decriminalized, so he's part of the first generation of, of young people for whom it's, a, it's okay to be gay, but it's still not really okay to be gay. The story is, the novel is entirely told through Catherine's point of view, and it's about her excitement at having a gay friend, really. It's not, you know, it's not, in many ways, it's not a, a pleasant story. Um, I love her very much as a character, um, but she is a challenging, self-absorbed, sometimes exasperating character, and her reaction to her friend's situation is not always altruistic, and in fact shades over into a kind of obsession, which I think, you know, is utterly born out of, as I said, the sociocultural context, a place in which, and a time in which, it's okay for a young man to be gay, but the impulse is still to push him back into the closet and to, to, to hide him as much as, as her instinct is to help him. Um, and that's Catherine. And she, but she, you said she would have gone back for that oh, absolutely. boat. Absolutely, no, I'm not, Catherine is not homophobic, but she is homophobic in the, in the buried, internalized, unthinking way. And this was so interesting in Ireland, and the, the publication date of the novel was this freak moment of serendipity, it came out five days after the referendum results, just because I had taken so long to finish it that... <laughs> but, um, no, no, she's not home, she's, of course, you know, she's... Uh, part of what was so interesting about the referendum was seeing, in the months coming up to the vote, all of, you know, all of these amazing stories, people, you know, the, the gay people of Ireland went, literally went to the doorsteps of the country, asking for votes, telling their stories in a really personal way, which was really difficult for them, and so many of the so much of the narrative pointed to this sort of layer of we're absolutely not homophobic and yet there is a, an other, you know, there's a, there's a way of thinking of the other. And I think it was a really important conversation to happen in the country. Uh, and by the way, I neglected to ask you because I am curious, it sounds like it wasn't the parental influence that got you writing because as you said, you were in the middle of this farm as a way to avoid chores, but, well, but tell me. And that is and isn't true, because listening to LaShonda, I mean, our, our stories of coming to literature are actually quite similar. You know, my, my, my parents were also library goers. We went to the library from the age of three or four. I knew how to read before I went to school. My mother taught me to read. So there was this really constant, gentle um, shepherding of, of the word and of literature, even though they, they themselves were not literary. My parents um, were not literary. They left school um, at 15. You know, they, they, it wasn't there for them in the way, but they decided, not in, a, not in any way in a pushy or forceful way, that, it, that reading was going to be massively important to their kids. And so I became a writer, and they were, you know, have, they remained delighted about that. They were at my book launch in Ireland two weeks ago, very proud and happy presences. We are the Athenaeum. I mean, this is really one of the greatest libraries I've ever been in. And it's, it's thrilling. It's thrilling to be here, not only in this great hall, where some of the great figures in history have spoken, but downstairs throughout 
it's an amazing place. So I, now it's sort of changed my perspective a little bit that, you know, what this place could, might be producing at this very moment downstairs or might be generating. But uh, going to you, Justin, uh, you know, again, we certainly can't call the people in your books characters. I mean, this is a work of reporting. Uh, and uh, tell us, uh, uh, and there are a lot of people we'd be very interested in meeting from your story as theirs. I guess you want us to meet your mother most of all, but, but tell us. Yeah, it's not, it's a pretty easy answer for me. I, I would introduce you to my mother who is really the subject of the book. It's called a memoir really for lack of a better term. Um, I always thought of it from the beginning more as a biography, as sort of an investigative biography. Uh, my story of finding out who my mother was. And my mother was uh, a, a girl from North Philly, from a sort of difficult home life, who left at 17 to join the army, met a tank driver in Fort Knox, Kentucky, got married, had my brother, got out of the army, moved back to Philly, had me, got divorced, got back into the army, became a, uh, she went to airborne school, started jumping out of planes, learned Arabic, became a counterintelligence, op well, analyst, I guess you would say. Got out of the army, moved to Arizona, and, uh, and then became a small business owner in Tombstone, uh, and raised my brother and I mostly by herself, was also married five times, and then eventually, when I was 20, was killed by her fifth husband outside, in, a, in a remote patch of land in the middle of absolutely nowhere outside of Tombstone, Arizona. And so I think the, the two central questions of the book really are, who was she and how did this happen? And so the book is essentially really a character study um, while also sort of narrating the story of her life. Remind me of your, your mother's first name again? Uh, Debbie. And so, uh, and, and just elaborate a little further because this, this whole relationship she had with men and you sort of had a sense of it, it sounds like, you know, but didn't quite realize, you know, just how much jeopardy she was in, in terms of the men she chose. But tell us a little bit more about that, because you, you, really, you really discovered a world that is repeated place after place after place. Yeah, it is. And I, well, I, I think for me, it's, the book is also the story of just one sort of case study in how domestic violence unfolds. And so when we grew up, I had a few abusive stepdads, uh, and she had a few abuse, abusive boyfriends uh, who she didn't marry. And so at some point, it just becomes, it, it becomes sort of as horrible as it sounds, you get used to it. It doesn't seem that abnormal. And it doesn't seem like that much of a threat. Um, and then by the, time, uh, by the time things got really bad in like the last six months of her life, I was, at, I was at college. And so I wasn't necessarily aware of everything that was happening. And of course, part of, uh, part of the sort of effects of domestic violence is that often the victims are actively working to sort of conceal it, even from their children. Um, so you don't see it really until later on. Now, let me ask you all, do you want to give me some more layers and even perhaps read a little bit from each of your books to just give us a little deeper understanding of who, of who your main characters are? So we're going to start with Justin. What do you, think out loud, what are you looking for? What, like what? Uh, I'm looking for a brief section that is essentially the condensed biography uh, of my mother when I'm talking about what I do know about her. Uh, and essentially, I'll, uh, 
I guess I'll just read a few, maybe like a paragraph or two. Is that a, couple, a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. And, and this is what you do know about her before you fully investigated or after? This is before. Okay. This is at the beginning of the second part of the book, before I really launched onto the, uh, the real, I guess I would say, investigation. So yeah, I'll just read, it, read a couple paragraphs. And this is, this is starting when she's in, uh, she's in high school, I guess, or just about to enter into high school. At 13, my mother showed up at my grandfather's door in the pouring rain, soaked and frowning, holding a suitcase. She'd said she wanted to live with her father one too many times, and finally her mother had dropped her off. Grandpop was working full-time for a union, living with his siblings in a house they'd inherited when their parents died. There was nowhere to put a teenage girl, so he sent her to a Catholic school north of the city, where she lived with the nuns for a year. He says she hated it. She was the only boarder, woke up with the nuns, had breakfast with the nuns, was schooled by the nuns. Nuns, nuns, nuns. <laughs> she told Grandpop she didn't know why he was punishing her. He told her one day she'd have kids and she'd understand. <laughs> After a year of picking her up every weekend and bringing her home, hearing her complain about boarding school, Grandpop bought a condo and my mother moved in with him. In public school, she twirled a baton, chased boys, got into trouble. Grandpop says he came home once and found some burnout boyfriend sitting on his couch drinking a beer. The boyfriend offered him one and Grandpop kicked him out. <laughs> at 15, my mother was picked up in Washington, D.C. by a cop who saw her walking down the street with her best friend at two in the morning. She'd been hitchhiking to Haight-Ashbury. That was 1973, Grandpop says, a little late for the free love, but she didn't know that. She didn't know much. He let her stew in the holding cell for a night and sent bus fare. Belinda? Um, okay, so... I'm laughing about the nuns because um, I went to a convent school and when my book was launched um, in my hometown, we, last week, yeah, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. And here I am in Nantucket. Um, but um, all of the nuns came <laughs> to the library. Li it was in the local library, which is in a where I learned to read, essentially, and you know, where, I, where, where I did my reading as a kid. But all of my old teachers, including lots of nuns, came. And, you know, when you have to read from a novel in which there's quite a lot of sex, or talk of sex, or where it's about sexuality, or where Irish people talk the way Irish people do, which is lot, with lots of effing and blinding, and there are lots of nuns sitting in front of you, it's just, it can be a little bit distracting. And now I've lost my, now I've lost my page, paging Dr. Freud. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read a very short section, which is just, what happens in this section, or what has happened in this section, is that uh, Catherine, having had really a dreadful night, but a night, you know, a night that she'll always remember in Dublin at a party, she and James, her friend, go to a, the party of a much older couple. They're artists and everything's very sophisticated. And Catherine and James are the two kids. And um, everything just comes crashing down for her. And she's really quite, I mean, I'm making light of it, but she's quite distressed. And she comes back to her hometown for her grandfather's 80th birthday party. And um, this is the passage that I had to read in front of the nuns. Um, and there's a word in here, ride, and I think you'll work out what it means. The following night, in the kitchen of Murphy's, which is the local pub, of course, her grandfather's local, Catherine and her mother and her aunts made hundreds of sandwiches. And from her seat in front of the television, old Mary Murphy kept one eye on Kenny Live, which is a TV show, and the other on the women who were slicing tomatoes and going through packets of ham. Like everyone who Catherine met with back home now, Mrs. Murphy commented on how much Catherine had changed and how she had grown, as though this was an achievement in itself. And she asked the same questions that people down home always asked. You'll marry in it so, she said, nodding to the television after Catherine had confirmed that yes, she did like living in Dublin. 
Catherine coughed out a laugh and looked to her mother for a mirroring of her own amusement, but her mother was not looking at her. Her mother's hands had, for a moment, gone still, and she was staring at the bread piled in front of her on the chopping board. You'll marry in Dublin, Mrs. Murphy said again, but this time it was not Catherine's mother who reacted, but her aunt, Fidelma. Oh, do not, Catherine, she said, wrinkling her face into a grimace, if you know what's good for you. Sure you don't know Dublin, her other aunt, Monica, said. I'm not talking about Dublin, said Fidelma, working a bread knife through a tower of salad sandwiches. I'm talking about riding. Fidelma, Monica and Catherine's mother spluttered in unison. Ride all around you, Catherine, Fidelma said emphatically, and don't bother your arse marrying any one of them. That's my advice to you. Jesus, tonight, said Catherine's mother, but along with Monica and Mrs. Murphy, she was creased up now with laughter. Fidelma pointed her knife straight at Catherine. Don't mind these ones, Catherine, she said. I'm not joking you. When you're my age, you know I wasn't joking you. I mean it. Ride all around you. <laughs> Catherine tried for laughter herself to match the gasps and shudders of the other women, but she was too mortified, felt too paralyzed in the spotlight. All she managed was a wheezing noise and a jerking of her shoulders. It's not really an option, she said. Make it an option, Fidelma pointed again. Jesus, Fidelma, Catherine's mother said. Will you concentrate on the bloody sandwiches? This is what you'll find yourself doing, Catherine, I'm warning you, Fidelma said, concentrating on the sandwiches. <laughs> Young people have great options these days, Mrs. Murphy said dreamily from her armchair. Great opportunities above in Dublin, Catherine, I'd say which started them all off again, really roaring laughing, this time bent low over the table, and Catherine standing in the middle of them, staring at a bowl of hard-boiled eggs. Well, she said to Mrs. Murphy, I suppose there's always something going on. Ride them backwards, Fidelma said. Give us something as juicy as that, please. <laughs> In the first half of Jam on the Vine, Ivo lives with her family in Central East Texas. I'm reading from the second half of the novel when the entire family has moved with Ivo to Kansas City, Missouri. And one of the reasons that they leave Texas is because although she attends university and learns to set type and has the experience to work for a newspaper, she can't get hired. Her race and her gender prevent any hiring in Texas. And so they take off for an urban environment because Ivo feels that it will be much easier for her to work for a newspaper in the city as opposed to backwards rural Texas. I'm going to read two letters. The first letter will be Ivo's letter to her former printing teacher, Ona. And Ona becomes her lover. Ivo and Ona are the central lovers of the book. In fact, it is Ona who will eventually inspire Ivo to launch her own newspaper. And the other set of lovers in the book, who are just as significant, are Ivo's parents. So there are two love stories at the core of the book. This letter was written from Kansas City by Ivo to Ona in November of 1916. And then I'll read Ona's response back to Ivo. Dear Ona, I begin with a pitiful and funny story. We are three women, mama, my sister, and me, with one decent coat between us, and a little luck from father time, since I rebel is still in school, or else the following scheme would never have worked. 
We decided that Mama should wear the coat daily because the family she cooks for lives on Ward Parkway, a boulevard that surpasses all other streets in Kansas City and is, according to the Kansas City Star, the city's organ of reputation and record, the greatest parade in America. It would not do for Mama to be seen coming and going in a tattered coat. Today, I wanted desperately to make a fine impression at the Kansas City Palladium, so I rode the trolley out in the afternoon to pick up the coat with the mind to return when Mama's workday ends. In just an hour, I will execute the final part of our master plan. I will wear my raggedy coat on the journey home with her. All the day's luck was spent on the scheme of the coat. The I, Williams, the newspaper expects to greet is clearly of a different gender and should be of a much fairer hue. My own articles are routinely flashed before me as I'm asked whether or not I wrote them. I've been urged to consider janitorial work and frequently respond that I came to the city to write for a paper, not to mop floors for one. Kansas City is starting to feel more like a dead end than a crossroad. My brother Timbo still can't find work and Rowena, sis-in-law, can't work while keeping house for us all and caring for the twins. Ira Bell is hoping to bring in a little money playing music, but Mama, with good reason, won't allow her in any club until she has graduated. Everything costs much more here. Mama returns from the grocery store disgusted with the price of food that, in her words, don't taste half as good as the dirt it grew in. I want so desperately to shoulder some of this burden, but how? The beautician needs a license and requires equipment. And really, think back to my first month setting type. Should I wield a pressing comb in the direction of any woman's head? I never learned to sew and cannot train to become a dressmaker, so I am told, nor can I teach. If I try to enter the vocations in which white women are employed, secretary or saleswoman, my would-be employer stares at me blankly. But I didn't advertise for a colored girl. Surely by now I have racked up enough lessons in degradation for the dean of life to confer upon me a degree in bitterness. I am downhearted and wishing to be near you. A word from you would lift me. Yours truly, I vow. From Austin, Texas, November 20th, 1916. Dear Ivo, in your long silence, I feared you had forgotten me. I've been thinking of you and wondering what it is that you're about. When has it not been true that a colored woman has a hard row to hoe? The path to livelihood is by no means smooth, but let this be no impediment. You might consider joining any number of women's groups, the National Association for Colored Women, that have helped to stabilize our people. You would benefit from these women, and they no doubt would benefit from knowing you. Have you visited the YWCA? No need to write that any word from you brings long-lasting cheer, but there you have it, along with my wishes for a letter from you soon, as ever, Ona. It sounds like there are two writers there. And, and I guess in those, when she was writing in 1916, I mean, if she were writing that today, and a teacher saw that, mm -hmm. just that letter, mm -hmm. they'd say, you know something? I, I think we have a channel for you, but not then. So how did she overcome the obstacles and actually become something more than somebody who mops the floors? Well, she 
declined all of the janitorial offers, and there are about, imagine this, but 13 Kansas City newspapers, 13 newspapers in one small town. That's the amazing world we inhabited at the beginning of the 20th century. 13 newspapers turn her down for journalism. And then, later on, when Ona moves from Texas to Kansas City, they decide to launch their own newspaper. So you create a road when there is, when there is no road. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're going to save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks! Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Hello? Hello? She hung up. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Back to the conversation. For the two of you, you create a road when there is no road. Have you ever faced that yourselves? Not in the same way that LaShonda's character has had to do, so that's for sure. Um, I mean, I suppose as a writer, you have to do it all the time. Because, you know, this is a very self-absorbed writerly answer, uh, not one about, about society, but r- when you sit down to start a new novel, you think you have a bit of road in sight. You think you might know what your novel's going to be about or who your characters are. And there always comes the delusion, and I think it's a necessary delusion, the first maybe year or the first six months, depending on how long it takes you to write a book. I, I'm a long, I take, I've taken with each of these books at four years, so I'm kind of thinking that might be my length of time. Um, but the first year, you must work all the time, but there's so much delusion, like you think, you think you have it, and then comes the awful moment when you realize, this isn't the novel. I've written so much and this is not the novel, I'm actually just starting now and I have to sort of start over. And it's a pretty painful moment. And if you have a spouse, they go through hell <laughs> in that week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my husband is uh, by the pool in the hotel at the moment because he has earned that um, luxury. But, um, you know, I think that, yeah, that, that would be my answer to your question. I, I think it's probably a very, like I say, it's a very writerly answer. It's, a, it's an answer about process. But there is a moment of, of realizing that everything you've done is, is, is nothing. And that's absolutely essential. If you didn't do the nothing, you wouldn't get to the, to the, to the, 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 the um, material or the world that, that emerges and remains. And, and I should say, I mean, in fairness, internal obstacles are often as formidable as external obstacles. So, uh, yourself, Justin? I'm afraid I also have a writerly answer to that. Um, I, I faced that, I think, when I started to write a memoir uh, without really knowing it because I've been writing fiction, I've been writing short fiction specifically, I've been working on a book of short stories set in Tombstone that were not especially autobiographical. And so, and I had gotten an MFA in fiction, I had been sort of studying fiction, reading almost exclusively fiction for years, and then I set out to write a memoir and realized I had no idea what a memoir looked like. 
And so I just had to read and steal sort of relentlessly from other writers um, and just read. I probably read, you know, 100, 150 memoirs in a year or two. And the thing is, is if you steal from enough people, then nobody notices. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I approached it. But in fairness to you, your writing style is, is, is very much, I mean, when, when you read Justin and you hear him, that's the same voice. That's your voice. And, and, and I'm really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curiously puzzled at how you got this voice from the upbringing and community where you were raised. Because I would imagine if we got together with the guys you hung out with in those days, we would not be hearing the same voices from these other people. Well, you'd have to go to jail, <laughs> first of all. Um, yeah, well, I, I think for a long time I had this idea that I had to be literary. There's this pressure to be literary and to, be, to, to write in this really sort of refined, high style. And then when I stopped, when I, when I read p other people who had not done that, um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically when I was at Stanford, I was, I was really tremendously fortunate to have Tobias Wolf down the hall. And um, he's just a gem of a, of a person and of a teacher. And it was really invaluable to me. I mean, I read this boy's life and I thought, oh, okay, you can, you can do this. You're allowed to do this. Um, and so that was really a huge, I think that was probably the, the moment when I, I realized that I could actually write somewhat like I might talk. So you, you went out and got as many voices in your head as you could and then started paring them down. LaShonda, I'm hearing from you, you really, you, 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 uh, you chose very carefully from a very early age. So that you had this sense that no, you had to develop your voice. Yeah, but that, didn't, that doesn't that? mean I wasn't a voracious reader. So I read a lot. And um, one of the things that I feel has saved me, um, in undergrad I majored in linguistics and my languages were German and Russian. So I've been reading in other languages since I was 17. And Germans approach syntax very differently than American writers and English writers approach syntax. And the same is true also of Russian writers. And so I've been paying attention to, to language on a scientific level and I've been reading as much as I could since forever. But taking that into a classroom and generating a story and workshopping it, that is something I was very clear that I was not going to do. It was just too precious for me uh, to do that. And I wanted to keep very pure um, my, my voice. I'm gonna, I want to open it up to you all in a couple of minutes, but I just have two questions that occurred to me. First of all, South Carolina is now in the news, and, and I just thought that you know, from your backgrounds, you might have some particular insight. Uh, we, ha we haven't re revealed the part of your book that talks about gun culture. Certainly, you know, in terms of race, this is a central issue in this. What, I don't want your reaction. What would Ivo, your reporters, how would she, what would her take be on this story? And in a sense, you'd have to transport her I do. Well, Ivo would be brokenhearted, and I just have to say that my book was going to press last fall when uh, all of the Ferguson stuff was happening on television, and at that point, I had a tour of 13 cities, and then as Mike Brown's story began to unfold, my tour grew to 56 cities because of, of the timing of, of the book. Uh, Ivo is practicing as a journalist in 
Jim Crow, Kansas City. And so her feelings would be, would be on fire. She would not be surprised by what happened at the AME Church in South Carolina. But what she would do is she would, she would write editorials overturning the sort of the line of, of logic that the gunman used, um, the two points that he made when asked to justify why he did what he did was number one, blacks are taking over the country. Or to, and his experience in South Carolina was that they were taking over. And number two was that African-American men were raping white women. That is, for any student of African-American history, that is the oldest line of logic. Gail Biederman, a fantastic historian, um, Rit wrote a very important book called Manliness and Civilization. I think it's one of the most important books written about Jim Crow culture in America. And in it, she talks about the fact that black men's primitive sexual nature has always been one of the reasons why they have been hunted by white vigilante groups and also by police officers. And we can add to that everyday citizens. Uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who was one of the journalists I spoke of a little bit earlier, when she started what we now know as investigative journalism, and she was traveling around the South asking, going into black communities and finding out about these lynching victims, what she discovered and reported was that these men were towers in their community, that they were preachers, that they were store owners, that they were school teachers, and so, she used the logic that lynching was used to destabilize black America because the best men in the community were the men who in fact were being plucked from life. This, what's interesting about the gunman is that, you know, people want to call him crazy. He's not crazy. He's very aware of Southern history and he used a justification that has been used for over 150 years. Look at his victims. Six were African American women. So it doesn't make sense that he used the logic that he would, have, he would have shot all men if he was concerned about the flower of white womanhood. And so we can turn that over on its head. And, and also the idea that uh, blacks are taking over. The Confederate flag, there's been a lot of hubbub about this in the news. The Confederate flag is still waving in, in South Carolina. I went to graduate school in the South. I can tell you that every other car has a Confederate flag bumper sticker and that there's all kinds of residual from, from the Civil War South in Southern states. So I find it fascinating that he feels that African Americans are taking over because there's absolutely no evidence of that when you're in South Carolina. Everything actually harks back to 19th century America in a very bizarre way. Ivo, if she were living and practicing journalism today, she would write about these things. She would drag the facts out into light the way good journalists do and she'd risk her life reporting it, and she'd do it over and over and over, and she would probably chastise the government, which she does in the book, during all of the race riots that break out in 1919 in the novel, which also happened in real life. She takes uh, Calvin Coolidge to task, and she asks, where is the legislation for lynching, which, unfortunately, we never saw in this nation. So, what we, what we witnessed in Charleston, that was a lynching. You don't need a rope to lynch. You can lynch with a knife. You can lynch with a gun. Lynching is extra legal, unlawful. 
violence on another human being. So that nine people were lynched. We're not using that word because we all want to get away from that legacy in America. I want to get away from that. We all do. But that's the truth of what happened. And I would report the truth. Linda, I'm going to get to you third on this, because, but you're, you, you, I think, have an interesting perspective being from someplace completely different, but perhaps there's some parallels in Ireland, but, but let me go just because of the gun aspect of this and the, you know, the easy access to guns. You grew up, I mean, you've been to gun shows, you grew up in that climate where you, there was a scene where, how old were you when you opened up the case and it was the gun that you owned, right? Oh, yeah. So t tell us about guns and how this fits into it. And by the way, I was reading, I don't know if you said there was a piece in the New Yorker just a couple of days ago, uh, we're talking about the, the, the latest research in criminal justice shows that erecting small barriers can have a huge impact uh, on reducing crime, whatever crime you're talking about, whether it's gun crime or other crime, just, you know, just small barriers help. But tell me about your experience in the gun culture. Sure. I guess I should first say that um, I'm sort of loath to speak toward South Carolina specifically because, for a lot of reasons, mostly because I don't know that we need another white male gun owner perspective on it. Um, but in gun culture specifically, uh, I, I think I'm in a very interesting position, and I often feel almost unique in this, in that, you know, I am the son of a murder victim, and she was killed with a gun, but I'm from a place where if you didn't own a gun, it's almost an affectation. Uh, every, literally every single person I grew up with owned guns. Um, and so uh, that puts me in, in a strange middle ground in American culture and in, in the gun debate. Um, and I think one of the really telling things while I was researching the book, there's a whole thread about Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral and trying to sort of destabilize that myth a little bit. And the really interesting thing about the gunfight at the OK Corral to me for the purposes of the book is that it was a fight over gun control. Um, so there was a lot of gun control in the frontier west. As a matter of fact, Tombstone banned carrying guns in the city limits because of a lot of gun violence, and it was not controversial. Um, and so what happened that day, essentially, I mean, there were a lot of other things that went into it, but the, 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 basic, the basic logic of that gunfight was that the Clanton gang brought guns into town, and Virgil Earp was the town marshal and went down there to take them away because they were violating a gun control ordinance and a gunfight erupted. And so um, I, I thought that was really telling. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously like, I, I think I'm maybe the only gun owner I know. I also own, I mean, I own a rifle and a shotgun, which, and not a handgun, which might seem like a fine distinction to other people, but I don't actually think is because I actually hunt occasionally. Um, but I, I might be the only gun control or gun owner in, in the country who also believes in gun control. Um, I think you know, it, it ought to be significantly harder to own one than it is to own a car, maybe. It, it sounds ridiculous that we need to debate that, but um, I think that's kind of my perspective. Although I, I also do, under, I, have a, I have unfortunately, like, I do think I understand gun culture in a way that's really disturbing to me um, in the sense that uh, you know, the thing that really scares me about the sort of radicalizing of gun ownership since the 60s, roughly, and, and you know, the fact that that ordinance could never be passed in modern day rural Arizona. I mean, Arizona now in the last few years, since my mother's death, legalized concealed carry with no permit. You can carry a gun around, you don't need any sort of legal um, document. And then even in the wake of the Safeway shooting, when my former congresswoman was shot in the head, 
than legalize carrying guns into bars. And so, and, and one of the things that really haunts me about that is that, you know, it's, it's, I don't agree with any part of it, but I do understand on some level that it's also a class issue, that it coincided, the, the, the extreme radicalizing of, of gun ownership and of the NRA as, a, as an institution has coincided almost exactly with the economic stratification of America. And gun owners are largely, lower, are, are largely working class people. And I think one of the real reasons, if they're honest about it, that they own guns is because it's one of the last reasons people like us have to fear them. So now I'm really interested in what you have to say, Belinda, because I mean, you, you really, I mean, you're immersed in this culture now. Are you, are you an American citizen now? I'm not an American citizen, okay. no. So I'm, t tell uh, me your perspective on listening to well, this. And I mean, listening to, I'm actually shaking having listened to LaShonda in particular. I just, uh, you know, what I would say is that I also, I started to think, you know, what would my character say, right? Which sounds probably like a really bizarre question to ask. Um, I think that Catherine, as a journalist, would at first think, it's not for me to say anything. And it would at first think, I shouldn't say anything in the sort of like, whereof we cannot speak, therefore we must be silent mode. And I would hope that she would, if she's going to be silent, it would be so that she's listening really carefully and that she's learning and that then she begins conversations. Because, you know, when, when Michael first mentioned that we, you know, maybe I could contribute in some way to this, to this aspect of the conversation, my instinct was like, oh no, I shouldn't say anything. My book is not, you know, there's nothing that emerges out of my novel that in any way would relate, but actually, I wrote about a country in which discrimination is a poison and, and acted as a poison. And that's what discrimination does. That's what prejudice does. That's when you have a community who are being, and, and I should say also that part of the aspect of, of tender is the trouble, the trouble, the troubles, the Northern Irish troubles. And I think what we're seeing here in the United States, if, if I may, is a war on black people. It's, I mean, these are acts of terrorism. Um, I did think, when I, when I read about the shootings and when I, when I read the coverage, it did flash across my mind, you know, those times growing up in the 90s in Ireland when the news would come on and it would be reported that a gunman had walked into a bar and, and, and murdered 10 people and walked out again. And then you thought, well, tomorrow there'll be another murder. There'll be another mass murder in that way. And I did think, you know, it is, it is for African-Americans, it is the same terror that you cannot go to church. You cannot go to the supermarket, you cannot go to a, your kids can't go to school, it's not safe because tomorrow morning there may be another guy with a gun who walks in. That is war. And in a society where, where that kind of hatred is, is at work, it doesn't just poison and, and destroy the lives of those who are, who, are, who are oppressed and those who are in danger, it destroys the fabric of the entire society. I mean, this is partly what I, I didn't articulate myself very well because I'm not really, I find that I'm not yet able to talk about the internalized homophobia that is so much a part of, was so much a part of Irish society in the 90s when this book is set, but as the last few months revealed, still is. But what that kind of discrimination does is that it doesn't just affect the, you know, the, the young, say, say for example, the young gay people who are directly affected by it. It affects the young straight people who are, who are watching discrimination at work um, and are growing up in a society which is not equal. Nothing is okay in a society like that. It may look okay, it may look completely normal, it may look functional, but it's not okay. And the effects will keep coming out generation after generation in really insidious and dangerous and damaging ways. And that's why the conversation, I, I don't even know what to say. We have to keep talking and listening to each other. 
Can I just, I'm sorry, can I just add that I'm really deeply touched by what Belinda just said, and that, that last, it's not okay, I wish that, I wish I could get t-shirts. I'm going to start putting a hashtag on it's not okay, like Black Lives Matter, because I think she really hit upon something. What really, after reading all of the reporting about Charleston, what really got me the other day, which made me just burst into tears, was seeing the gunmen marched out in police custody with a vest on, with all of his dignity intact. And that should have been the way that went down. But judge that against African-American teens recently in the news being thrown to the ground. Teenagers, we're talking about children with the kneecaps of officers in their backs. And I thought, wow. So if I was a young person, if I was a, a 17 or 18 year old black person, paying attention to the news this summer instead of you know, goofing off. Those, the juxtaposition of those images of a murderer of nine people being let out in a vest, protected and with dignity intact. And then a peer of mine being harassed or terrorized, as Belinda appropriately pointed out, by a cop, that would trouble my soul so deeply, I don't know what I would be able, what I would do with that as a 17-year-old. So that's what she means by it's not okay. It's not okay that millions of people are seeing these images. What are we supposed to do with this going forward? I don't know. Well, it's interesting because we talk about, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of debate about, again, the Confederate flag. I don't, when too many people start saying the same things, I start to then question, okay, are we just, you know, is it too simple a narrative? That as the, if we eliminated the Confederate flag from government buildings, would that send a signal that would make a difference? I don't know. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think it's about the Confederate flag. You know, uh, Toni Morrison was on Charlie Rose about a month ago, and she said something very, very interesting to me. She said, we need completely new police training in this nation. And she judged the police with the military. And she said, you know, if, if uh, we can do research and we can look at lots of cases nationwide, if we were to look at police officers who were once upon a time military men, it goes down very differently. The way they apprehend um, suspects. And, and she said, what, why is no one addressing the cowardice? Since when do you shoot a man running away from you who is unarmed? What is this about? And so I do think she is hitting on something when she talks about eradication of what has been going down um, in police systems nationwide and, and a sort of a new retraining. Something like taking down the Confederate flag or when the film Selma came out, a lot of uh, black academics, scholars, writers were saying that we needed to change the name of the George Pettus Bridge, and people have recently been saying there are all of these streets in South Carolina that are named for Confederate soldiers. Changing the name of the bridge, changing street names, taking down flags, that won't change the nation's history, nor will it change people's hearts and minds. We need legislation. And, and we, need, we need rules, we need laws. That seems to be what people understand best in this nation. And so I think we have to start there. The other stuff is a Band-Aid as far as I'm concerned. Let me open it up to further questions. Does anybody, anybody have any questions? Go ahead. Um, well, I'll just say, and actually, um, 
it's, it's interesting that uh, Scott's row is here because he has been um, really, I, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude because he's been really important in, in helping to support the Stegner Fellowship at Stanford, which is the only reason I'm, sti I'm sitting here. Uh, and, and that's essentially how I got to Stanford was because they have this wonderful thing that is essentially a lottery ticket for writers. And you need nothing but a writing sample. You don't need any sort of pedigree. You don't need, an, uh, you don't need a degree. People go who, are, who, have, who don't even have college degrees. They got a guy out of prison one time to go to this writing fellowship. And then he promptly stole a lot of books and wound up back in prison. Um, <laughs> But he's sort of a legend there. But anyway, I, I applied for the, 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 the short version is that I applied for the Stegner Fellowship uh, for a few years. And then one day I got a call from Evan Boland, the great poet. And I thought, I thought my friends were playing a prank on me. <laughs> and they weren't. So uh, that's how I wound up at Stanford. Yeah. That's, by the way, that's a, I'm, I'm going to remember that line. You know, all you need is a writing sample, no pedigree. I guess that's what field you guys are in. I mean, you really don't have to have a pedigree, do you? Um, no, you don't to write, no. I mean, but as I mentioned, most writers have to make a living in another way, and um, a lot of us teach, and that can be quite restrictive in that you do have to have an MFA, for instance, to teach creative writing. And I, I have an MFA, like Justin, I have an MFA in fiction, and I'm very glad I did it. Um, it was at the right time of my life. I needed structure, I needed discipline, and I also needed to get out of Ireland at that time. Um, sounds more dramatic than it is, but I just did. I needed to live somewhere else. I was working as a journalist. My deadline, um, the way I was meeting deadlines was completely opposite to the way you need to think about a long writing project. So it was the right thing for me at the time. Um, but I think that, 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 that is a pity, you know, that now, it's becoming a career in a way that I think, you know, restricts a lot of really great writers, you know, that they can't go into a classroom because they don't have an MFA or now a PhD in creative writing, which is the next step apparently. Um, so, yeah, it shouldn't, it, sh it shouldn't be a thing of pedigree, but it sometimes and, can be. And I'm sorry, you're reading to, to address her Oh, my question. reading, everything. Um, I, I read a lot of poetry. I read a lot of contemporary fiction, you know. I'm actually embarrassingly not that well-versed in the classics, and that's something I keep meaning to, to, to get around, you know, to, 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 to resolve or to begin resolving, because you'll never resolve it completely. It's a lifetime of reading. Um, but I read a lot of um, contemporary poetry and fiction. Um, yeah, everything I can get my hands on, really. And Lashonda? I'm reading, uh, this is my year for Edith Wharton because I'm working on a novel set in Gilded Age, New York City, and uh, Miss Wharton left us 38 books, so this is the year of Edith Wharton. I'm reading everything that Wharton ever wrote. And also when I was on tour, a lot of people kept, almost in every city, somebody in one of the bookstores would say to me, have you read a lot of Willa Cather? And I would always say to them, no, I haven't. But because I kept having that name sort of thrown up to me, I am now reading a lot of Cather. The novel that I'm into right now is called Song of the Lark. And it is a fantastic novel about uh, creative process, interestingly enough, an opera singer. I love, I should say, that I have a very deep affinity for the 19th century. I love their usage of language. And right now, we're sort of caught up. I'm noticing a trend with a lot of writers for short sentences. 
um, very, uh, it's, it's hip now to, to parse, to really parse your sentences. And I don't like that. I think that we are losing quite a bit of narrative punch. And I, you know, I, th I think about Rebecca West, who writes these very long sentences, and they're never florid. She never has one superfluous word. And so she's teaching me how to compose a 40, 50, 60 word sentence and have it still be muscular. And I think there's a lot of genius in that. I always swim against the crowd. And so to keep myself sort of versed in, a, in the, the kind of narrative practice that, that makes the reader feel like she or he is being lowered into a well, I read from the 19th century as much as I can. We're going to have to work on your Twitter vocabulary then because that's... I'm awful at Twitter because I hate 140 <laughs> word characters. Yes. Are you interested in hearing how they managed? How did you manage to get published? It's a very good question, and I have a lot of friends who are very concerned with it. I am not, because I believe that one of the best things that you can do as a writer, early as possible in your career, is get an agent that you would take a bullet for. Sorry. <laughs> it's the first thing that came to mind. Get, get an agent that you absolutely love and trust. My agent is always reminding me that it is my job to show up to the computer and to write a sentence. And I trust her so much. She's one of the best in the business. I have Scott Turo's agent. I have Ann Hood's agent. There are about four or five of us who are represented by Gail Hockman. And she's one of the best in the city. And I just, if Gail told me jump, I would say how high. Because that is how much I trust her with my career. Career. It is not a relationship to enter into lightly. I, uh, I knew that I wanted her. I did not go to an MFA program or take a class. And when I was ready to start publishing, I went to my bookshelf, and I tell people this who are interested in writing, and I started pulling some of my favorite books, and I read acknowledgments, and I kept seeing the name Gail Hockman. I had one agent on my list. I wanted her because she had represented the books that I cherished so much. And then I researched her, and discovered she was not taking new writers. She had over 100 writers. She was not taking new writers. And I thought, I will not be denied this woman. So I went to Sewanee Writers Conference in Tennessee, where I knew she would be. And I invited her to my reading. And she came and heard me read and said, you now have representation. And so I think it was a match made in heaven. And I really do think that author-agent that author relationship, I cannot stress it. How, how significant it is, because we, we're not supposed to worry about things like that. I mean, I tweet, and I have Facebook, and I do all of these things that I really feel at the end of the day don't matter. It is still word of mouth and Oprah Winfrey that sells books <laughs> in, in the United States. And so I, I really try, and when I'm at writer parties in New York City, I walk away when those kind of discussions begin to inevitably form in parties, because that's not where the energy should be. My, my energy has to be on craft, on plot, you know, my research. I just can't worry about how the books get into the hands of readers. That's not what I signed up for. That's my, my feel. Belinda? Um, well, I really like what LaShonda just said about her agent you know, reminding her or helping her to, to remember and bear in mind that getting to the page is her job, you know, that's the most important thing for sure. But even getting an agent can be hard, let's face it, you know, even get, that's really, it's difficult to get the agent. And I also have a wonderful agent, Peter Strauss, uh, with Rogers Colers White in London. And I was very lucky, it, it's different for everybody, I guess that's what I would say. I mean, my path to publication, because I was a journalist in Ireland, I had a, some profile, and so when I sent him my excerpt, he already knew of me, and that opened a door in a certain way, so I'm very conscious of the privilege that I had. On the other hand, I've been writing since I was eight, 
And, you know, I published here and there. I sent short stories out. I, I, even though I wasn't very strategic about it, I, I was all the time working to make myself visible, you know, so that when the time came to send a novel, I would have a certain recognition. That probably sounds much cruder and, and more deliberate than it was, but at a certain level, it was crude and deliberate. I wanted to help my novel on its way before it was even written. But everybody's path is different. What I would say is that I am optimistic for publishing as well. I actually think it's a, it's a good time. There are lots of books coming out. There are lots of writers. The one thing that worries me is that novels have a very short window within which to make an impact now. And if it doesn't happen, that's it for the novel. And that's awful, especially for debut, first or second or third novels. There should be a period of an author's life where they're publishing books not because they need, you know, they must be the next big thing or nothing else, but because they're at the beginning of a long career as a writer. And that, at the moment, doesn't really seem to be the case, and I don't see that getting any better, to be honest. Well, my particular path was also, it was really just blind luck. Um, the Stan Stanford, the, the Stegner Fellowship is, once I got that, things got enormously easier. And I still feel really fortunate about that. But, but essentially, I, I think you, when, when people ask you that, it's, I, I don't have any great advice. Um, I'm still, I still don't really understand, even though I've had a book published, how it really works. I also have a great, I would take a bullet for my agent. I, I love Julie Bear. She's... Oh, Julie's wonderful. Oh, she's great. Yeah, she's, um, she's one of my favorite people. And I, I, and I met her at a, at a writer's conference. Uh, we, we had a conference at, at, at Breadloaf, and um, we met and uh, hit it off. And, and you know, but... but so I guess you have to be, you have to be good, you also have to be lucky. Um, and, and so I've been enormously lucky, just blind luck, like having, a, having a, a, a meeting with Julie Bear, I didn't schedule it, they scheduled it for me, we just happened to stumble into each other. And that I met her right, you know, three months after I had started working on uh, my memoir. And so if I had met her six months earlier, I would have had a lot of short stories about Tombstone that nobody wanted to publish to show her. <laughs> and believe me, it, that's why I say you have to be good too. You know, it took me a while to realize that that book of short stories just isn't any good. No, it's still unpublished. Nobody's publishing that thing. It's never going to happen. You know, you have to move on. And so, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's be good and then be lucky. And, and I don't know how you do that really. Yes. Yeah, my, my mother's father, my grandfather on that side, um, we became really close after she passed away and she was always really close to him and he's a very gentle man. He's really the only person, he's the only man I've ever known who I wanted to be an example. Uh, and so he really became uh, the closest thing to a father I ever had. And uh, I mean, he recently passed away, but we had, we, we became really close after her death. And I think if, I think he, he's that force, if, if, if there was one, and, and there was one, it was him. You know, he was, uh, he was a really wonderful man. Other questions? Yes. I'm working on a short story now that I'm on deadline for, so I have to meet that deadline. I also write plays, and um, I'm working, I have a long, languishing commission with the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, which I've just sort of rejigged because I wrote a play for them four years ago, and then I, oh no, more than that, five years ago, we workshopped it, um, which means going into a room with actors and a director, and then that day, my first novel sold, and my life became about the novel. And in the period of time, during all of that was happening, while well, all of that was happening, the play dated horribly. It was about the economic crash in Ireland, and just aspects of it became so overdone, frankly, in a good way, in other people's work. That sentence is so insincere, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> I love you, Irish writers. Um, 
I just decided to dump it basically and start over. So last week I had a meeting and I said, let's forget about that play. I'm going to write you another one. So that's what I'm working on now. Oh, uh, I wrote a trilogy of plays called The Appropriate Ones, and one called Menemsha, which is a little place on Martha's Vineyard, sorry. Um, one, <laughs> one called Menemsha will be staged at an off-Broadway theater in Manhattan called Stage Left, and all three of the plays are about an interracial family in America. All three of the plays deal with race, because it is the wound that will not heal in America until we rip off the Band-Aid and let it breathe, talk about it. Um, it is a play about uh, an interracial lesbian couple who live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and they raised a black son who is now a college graduate, a man of the world, and is experiencing what it's like to be a black man. And in, in his experiences, he sort of turns against his white mother, which is deeply, deeply painful for the character of June. And uh, so the play Menemsha unfolds when the family is vacationing on the vineyard and the white mother and the black son um, go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And it's, it's very dramatic and very painful. And the other thing that I'm working on is my Gilded Age novel called God's Follies. And it's also inspired by real women, women's history. Uh, there was a famous jewel thief in Manhattan, a Jewish jewel thief by the name of Frederica Mandelbaum. She was known as Queen of the Fences because she could get in any apartment in Manhattan and so could her thieves. And uh, at the same time that she lived, and she lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there was a black woman in Harlem named Queenie. So there was Queen of the Fences and there was Queenie who was the first black person to set up a numbers bank. And in my novel, I have, I have these two women meet and they are vying for Manhattan's underworld. And, and but they eventually work together and they pull off the heist of the century. That's the new book. A, 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 another wonderful case of Jewish-African-American cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're gonna save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks! Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Hello? Hello? She hung up. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company Affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Welcome back to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder, and this is the Emerging Authors episode, recorded live at this summer's Nantucket Book Festival. I'm working on, um, I'm supposed to say I'm working on a novel, and I am on and off. Just in case my agent hears. Who's your publisher? Um, Random House. Uh, well, I don't have a public. I mean, it was a one-book thing, so I don't actually have one right now. But um, it's about people that work at a resort in Albuquerque and start uh, robbing their customers' houses. But at the moment, I'm working on a very strange and 
essay about, uh, I visited Holcomb, Kansas, and about Truman Capote and In Cold Blood and the sort of legacy of murder writing in America, which is kind of an obsession of mine. I, I have a final question. Yeah, because we have two minutes left, right? I'm going to get it. So, I don't Daniel Menneker is not in here, is he? So, Daniel Menneker is, is, is really one of the great figures in, in fiction editing. He was the head of fiction at The New Yorker. Uh, his wife spoke here. Uh, uh, yes, Catherine Bouton? Bouton. Spoke here yesterday. Anyway, I interviewed him last year. This is a guy who had been reading the classics from a very early age, read fiction, fiction, was an editor of fiction, was head of Random House for a long time. And he's in his early 70s now. I said, what are you reading these days? He said, just nonfiction. I said, why? He said, because I've read so much great fiction that the explosions of recognition, that was his term, I love that term, the explosions of recognition don't come as easily from fiction anymore to me. So I read nonfiction. And so he reads E.O. Wilson, the great biologist, and he reads anything that will teach him something very concrete about the world we live in. How do you all feel about that? Fiction versus the, could, you're all, you, I mean, now you're going towards some fiction, right? You two are already in the world of fiction. Can you ever see yourselves becoming, you started in journalism. Well, I actually believe that the blur, the line between fiction and nonfiction is not actually that, that strict, you know, and, and a lot, of, I'm reading a lot of nonfiction oh, at please, the Please, this isn't the time to talk about Brian Williams. It's hybrid, I'm sorry. This isn't the time to talk about Brian Williams. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was a too easy a shot, and, I, and actually, I, I have torn, um, yeah, torn feelings. I mean, without going on, I just don't think the line is that strict between the two. I'm reading Maggie Nelson's book, The Argonauts, at the moment. I'm probably not pronouncing that properly. Um, a lot of the reading that I'm doing, and actually, to answer your question more sincerely, I'm reading a lot of women at the moment. Um, I realized, you know, that the Irish literary tradition is very male, and my first novel was very steeped in that aspect of things, and I'm, I find myself making a conscious effort to, you know, not to immediately read male writers. I, I think that's how I grew up reading and I've tried to change that and somehow that has also synced into reading work that doesn't really um, care or respect about the boundary between fact and, fic fact and fiction uh, quite so rigidly. Do you, do you see that same blurred line too or would you ever say I'm going to take a year and I'm going to become a reporter? 80% of what I read is nonfiction. I love nonfiction. And, and usually when I go into a real reading zone, I am, I am reading internationally, which I think is so important. I cannot stress enough how American writers should read people who write around the globe. I love Lucifone literature. I love South African literature, Brazilian literature, German literature. Russian literature. So if I'm not reading nonfiction, I'm a historian, so I just gravitate towards anything about history. I love to read history. History, being a historian also gives me an advantage on plot. Nobody can write plot like historians. We understand it on a, in, on a, in a very different way. Not to toot my own horn, but it helps to read history. I understand that comment completely, the comment that, that precipitated your question, yeah. Daniel's question, uh, his comment. There's something about even if a history book is poorly written, I still come away with something. If I read a poorly written novel, I'm just pissed off. Sorry. <laughs> I just am. Thank you all for joining us for the, uh, the writers who have emerged. <laughs>like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. 
Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.